I know that my family is not the only one that went through that, right? There are so many Native families who went through forced relocations as another mechanism, right, of the state to dispossess that land from us. Hello, welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Co Primo Miigwech, for joining us today. Native Lights is, at its core, a place for Native folks to tell their stories. Each and every week, we have wonderful conversations with great guests from a whole lot of different backgrounds. Most, if not all, have a wonderful mix of passions and gifts, and we talk to them about their gifts and how they share them with the community centering around finding purpose and, you know, amplifying Native voices. How are you doing, Leah? What's going on? I'm doing great. I know, we, we're kind of hyped up here, Cole. We're kind of like, <laughs> feeling it. I think, A little energetic. Yeah, like every week, it's so great to talk to new people. I know, I, I think we've talked to so many people that it's getting to the point where, like, it's mostly new people to me and to you, I mm-hmm. believe. Yeah. And that's really cool to me. Um, being able to reach out to, I don't know, people who were once strangers and who are now acquaintances through Native Lights. There always seems to be, every once in a while, like a connection that we'll find with these guests and <laughs> some other previous guests or people that we know. And it's mm-hmm. always wonderful to hear those and, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we're always open to suggestions. Yes. So, Please let us know. Us <laughs> Social media channels. Mm-hmm. So, today we're continuing a conversation surrounding the Truth Project. Uh, this is a project that critically examined the impact of the University of Minnesota on Indigenous people in the state. Uh, the report has since been released, and there's a lot to dive into, reflect, and learn from um, in the last couple of weeks, we've heard from Truth Project coordinator Misty Blue, as well as uh, Adriana Goodwin, who was a Red Lake Nation Tribal Research Fellow. Uh, they've been great conversations where we not only you know dive into their involvement in the report, their thoughts on the report, and the next steps, uh, but we also got to know them as people and what led them to this moment. So I highly recommend going back and listening to those if you have not. Um, a lot of good things in there. So, But this week, I'm very excited to speak with our guest, uh, another member of the Truth Project's core research team, Anne Garagiola. Anne Garagiola, a descendant of the Boys Fort Band of Chippewa, is a university coordinator and a lead researcher on the Truth Project. She's also a PhD student in American Studies and a project manager in the Office of Native American Affairs at the University of Minnesota. Mm. She's involved in a bunch of things. Uh, we'll get into that and more. Um, so here she is, Buju Anne. Buju Anne Gerjola Indigenakas, Azapakoni Zaga Egan Indunjaba, Withro and Da. Hi, everyone. My name is Anne Gerjola. Um, I'm a descendant of the Boys Fort Band of Chippewa. My family comes from Net Lake. Um, and currently, um, I live in a very rural small town just uh, northeast of the Twin Cities. And that's where I'm coming to you all from. To move into the Truth Project, can we just start, you know, how you uh, became involved in that? 
way back, right before everybody went into lockdown, I was a master's of public policy student at the Humphrey School, and I needed an internship. And Tad Johnson had just been appointed the first ever uh, Native in senior leadership at the university in its 170-year history. Uh, but he was appointed to the position without a staff or a budget in his office. Um, and so uh, he was looking for interns and me and a couple of other folks from Humphrey applied for the position. And I began working with Tad in January of 2020. And um, this was one of the projects that came up shortly after the Truth Project is um because a couple of things happened then in quick succession, right? So um, the High Country News article, uh, Land Grab Universities, was released. And um, in response to their findings that the University of Minnesota, while receiving some of the least amount of land, uh, made the most profit off of that land when compared with other universities in the Moral Act, um, the Minnesota Indian Affairs Council was really looking to figure out why. And so um, I was involved in writing um, a memo that accompanied several resolutions that they uh, put out uh, calling on the university to be in better relation with Indigenous people. And so um, that's how it all started. <laughs> and uh, I've been involved in the project ever since. So what was your uh, main focus in, in your research uh, for the Truth Project? Yes, uh, thanks. Um, my focus was really around the roles that the founding board of regents played in Indigenous land dispossession and genocide and how they capitalized on those human rights abuses in order to um, profit both personally and professionally. So I spent a lot of my time in the archives at the Minnesota Historical Society and at uh, the University of Minnesota, kind of sifting through um, a lot of different things, right? In like um, various collections that belong to the founding board of regents, um, because they, they were names that we've heard um, as being involved in a lot of anti-Indian policies back in the mid 1800s, right? Alexander Ramsey, Henry Sibley, Henry Rice. Um, those were just three members of the founding boards of regents. And so uh, I looked through a lot of their communications, their ledgers, uh, maps and surveys that they commissioned um, all in um, an attempt, right? To, to gauge how, how um, that went into the founding of the University of Minnesota. I'm curious about the archives. So, I mean, it, it, the this question of, you know, the history, the real history, seems like such a big undertaking. How do you organize your thoughts, organize your strategy to go into the archives and find what you're looking for. What do you even know what to to look for right um, off uh, to begin with? Yeah, there's a lot down there, right? So um, initially I began at the Minnesota Historical Society because what I was looking for at that point in time was land script records. And I wanted to locate that 
first parcel of land, the very first piece that the university carved up and made a profit of, um, because I still feel very strongly that that land needs to be honored in some way. Um, and we haven't yet located that, but that's where I started to recognize these names that were signing these land bureau office, um, uh, uh, forms, right? And, and what it was, was they were disputing other settler claims to these parcels of land, right? So there was multiple parties, uh, often arguing over a specific parcel of land, um, and the university's board of regents were writing to um, the Bureau of Land Management to kind of assert their dominance over these parcels of land that they deemed that they wanted for the university. So <laughs> that's how it all started. And yeah. when I couldn't find um, the records that I was looking for uh, at MNHS, I went back to um, the University of Minnesota. And I had never done archival research before. And we were really lucky to have a uh, a person uh, involved in our project, Dr. Sophie Hunt, um, who uh, was at the University of Minnesota, but is now at St. Kate's. And she really helped train us on archival research methods while we were, you know, in the very process of doing it. Um, but I would say that our process was very inductive. We went in with broad um, questions and uh, the archivist at the library, um, Ellen Holt Worley, uh, she was incredible in helping us to pinpoint uh, exact collections and documents um, that would be of interest or that would pertain kind of to the Board of Regents and or uh, land um, around that specific period of time. Gotcha. Because I'm sure that there was a ton of other things happening at the same time. Like, how do you, you know, look for exactly what you're gonna, what you're interested in? So it's good to have those people who are who are experts in in researching in the archives. So when you're, you know, discovering these uh, bits of information, like how do you, how how are your emotions uh, as you're seeing as you're seeing it? At times it was really difficult, right? And I don't think that any of us were anticipating that um, as, you know, new researchers, as graduate students. Um, we weren't really aware of the secondary trauma that comes with archival research. There would be days where I was sitting in there just like reading um you know, in, in their own handwriting, the decisions that people made to intentionally harm and, and commit genocide against our peoples. And that was really difficult, right? And I think um, all of us uh, on both the university side um, and the tribe side were um, caught off guard with how difficult that was going to be um, emotionally and spiritually. And so uh, very early on in our project, we actually went back to Minnesota Transform. We went back to our funders and said, hey, you know, our researchers are um, experiencing a lot of grief 
around this. Um, they're being re-traumatized. Um, how can we support them in that? And what was decided is that they would give us additional funds. And those funds went to um, pay for both um, grief counseling from an Indigenous counselor and uh, to uh, a spiritual advisor. So we had both on our project that we were able to turn to, uh, both both individually and collectively to work through some of uh, what we were um, experiencing. I think that so often when we talk about the genocide that happened, right, we think of like it in like this broad context, right, like a broad swipe of a sword. But when you're in the archives, you're reading like these millions of little cuts that were inflicted upon our ancestors. Um, and just to, um, you know, repeatedly see those decisions being made, I guess it's it's something that a lot of us are still processing. Was there cuts that you mentioned, little cuts that really stuck out to you that you didn't expect? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of things that we found, you know, um, we, we learned um, the very uh, insidious and intentional ways that these folks were able to insert themselves into communities, uh, particularly through industries like the fur trade um, and often through marriage. So we know that uh, Henry Sibley was a fur trader, um, but what I didn't know was that he had uh, married into a Dakota community. Uh, married a Dakota woman, and they had a child together. Um, and when that woman died, um, her name was Tashina Ohindaway, from what I've I've read in in various records, or a uh, red blanket woman in English. After she passed on, um, the child was still very young, and he sent it sent her. Uh, it was a girl uh, to missionary school so he could take her half breed script land. And so that was just like a devastating story. And then um, also around the same time, I heard um, this teaching from uh, Ramona Kiddo Stately, and she talked about how um, that that length of the river right from Owamniamni to Bedote was a place where Dakota women would go and gather um, medicines for birthing and healing. And uh, that... Henry Sibley knew that and that he was behind the legislation that uh, demanded that the university be placed at or near the, the falls at St. Anthony, which is Owami. Um, you know, he, he knew. He knew the importance of that to, to Dakota reproduction and, and life ways. Um, and that was... Um, you know, a really hard thing for me to process, right? Because that wasn't information that I had ever known known before. I, I found information, you know, personally too, um, up at Boys Fort, uh, Adriana, actually Adriana Goodwin, uh, one of our research fellows uh, for the Red Lake Nation and also a research assistant and fellow student at the Humphrey School uh, at the time. Um, was going through some boxes from the extension office. And we found documents that uh, discussed how 
the the university extension was responsible for relocating 36 families uh, from Boys Fort um, to various places. Uh, the families weren't named, so we don't yet know um, who they were or what impact that had on them. But we do know, right, um, that that relocation programs had um, a significant impact on um, disconnecting folks from from land, from culture, um, and from their kinship networks. And so um, that really hit close to home for me, you know, and taking into consideration, right, this like violence against uh, Indigenous people, especially against Indigenous women and children, you know, that, that we were seeing as like this theme in the archives. Um, because my grandma, uh, she was relocated around the same time. Um, as these families from Boys Fort. And uh, my grandma uh, actually grew up in Hibby. Um, her, her parents were relocated before her, right? So I come from generations of folks that have been repeatedly relocated by the government. And um, she was sent to a, a relocation program where she got some training on, on nursing. Um, but just thinking about... Uh, kind of the trajectory that that led my family on. Um, and we know also from, from other scholars' research, the connections between land dispossession and uh, social determinants of well-being, right? Like uh, homelessness, poverty, um, educational attainment, and, and violence. And those were all um, things that I had dealt with. Um, in my course of time, and I wondered, you know, and I'm still processing, you know, how is that related to that relocation? Um, and uh, I know that my family is not the only one that went through that, right? There are so many Native families who went through uh, forced relocations um, as a, a way of uh, another mechanism, right, uh, of the state to, to uh, dispossess that land from us. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today, we're speaking with Anne Garajola, descendant of the Boys Fort Band of Chippewa. She's the university coordinator and lead researcher on the Truth Project, which critically examined the impact of the University of Minnesota on Indigenous people in the state. Let's dive a little bit more into, you know, uh, for instance, uh, we talked to uh, coordinator Misty Blue. She said doing the research in a good way. We talked to Adriana Goodwin. She talked about you know making sure that the data is owned by the Native nations that you know we're, we're, that the research is being done about and data is being built around. Uh, could you talk more about that and just how you all made sure to do this in a good way and you know respect data sovereignty and things like that? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that was like, that's one of the things that, that we were really committed to throughout the entire process, right? Is we know and, and we experienced that the university has not only um, taken and commodified land and 
and non-human relatives, but also um, our knowledge and our culture. And we experienced that firsthand when we got to tour the archives. I don't know if either of you have been in the university archives in the Anderson Library, but you ride this elevator down and it goes down like stories, right? And they actually like dug out the bedrock um, along the river there and the archives go underneath. And so there's like uh, just football field like lengths, right? I don't even know how far on it goes. Just knowing how the university hoards knowledge, right? And, and commodifies knowledge that maybe it shouldn't. Uh, we were very careful um, in our contracts with uh, Minnesota Transform and uh, the Minnesota Indian Affairs Council and the subawards that went to the tribes uh, that maintained uh, data sovereignty and that were clear that any data collected uh, belonged to the tribes and if they wanted to share any of it with the university, that was their choice and they could do it upon their own terms. That was probably one of the, the first times that a major project at the university, right? Um, and I say at the university, and that's kind of problematic too. But um, it's the first time that, you know, uh, a major grant was kind of held to this, this expectation of data sovereignty. And so it made it interesting to um, find ways to meet the requirements of the grant reporting while still maintaining that sovereignty and that right of data uh, ownership to the tribes. All right. So uh, before we get uh, more into you as an actual person, uh, let's, you know, uh, since the report has been released, what are some of the bigger things you'd like to see come out of it? Uh, next steps? I say all the time that um, you know, we're, we understand that the university is going through great transition right now. However, um, the Board of Regents still has not acknowledged the report and nobody from um, senior leadership's levels, right, the president's level or the regency level, have reached out to tribal nations or to MIAC to do any type of consultation around the findings and recommendations in the report. So we believe that um, needs to be a first and imminent step uh, that is taken by the university. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're speaking with Anne Gergiola, descendant of the Boys Fort Band of Chippewa, who is a university coordinator and a lead researcher on the Truth Project, which critically examined the impact of the University of Minnesota on Indigenous people in the state. Let's talk about you a bit and how you got into this line of work. Um, what sparked your interest when it came to research and data? So I kind of come to academia in a non-circuitous route. Um, I was a non-traditional student. Um, I actually, um, due to some of the things I mentioned earlier, ended up dropping out of high school when I was 16 and uh, got my GED. Um, so I could work full time to support my family um, because of some of the things that they were going through. And I didn't begin my college journey until uh, 
I was in my 30s when my kids started school, right? And I started part-time and and that took a long time. So I've been in school for like 10 years now. <laughs> and so um, very early on when I started at community college, I realized that uh, policy change and pushing institutions to, to enact change um, one, they ask for proof, right? And they want data on their own terms, which I didn't like. Um, so I love doing uh, research uh, using indigenous methods um, and kind of like confronting those uh, Western expectations of academia. Um, but also recognizing that data isn't enough, right? Sometimes we can teach people and people know better, but they don't always do better. So that um, data needs to be paired with action and pressure. <laughs> so that's kind of how I, I come to this project with uh, that experience. Was there something that you wanted to research when you first got started that kind of, I don't know, kicked off your interest? So when I first started at community college all those years ago, um, we were just starting to have conversations about high concentrations of poverty among college students. Um, and the and by that, I mean, you know, the crises that that students go through more than the general population in terms of housing and food insecurity. And so I began school at Century College and uh was working um, with a counselor, Michelle Jerzak, there to push administration to recognize that we needed a uh, a, a resource center, a food pantry, um, right? They, they had a food pantry, but um, we wanted to expand it and also to offer other supportive resources there because we know that food is only the most pressing issue. Um, and so when I began those conversations, um, a lot of the pushback that I received was, oh, you know, college students are hungry. They just don't know how to manage their money. Um, you know, if they didn't have things like cell phones or drink Starbucks, they they wouldn't be food insecure. And so both at Century and then when I transferred to uh, my four-year college, Hamlin University, I worked with other students to um, really do student-led uh, research around how much food insecurity was on campus, right? How many students were actually, actually met the USDA's definition of food insecure? And then to add to that, um, we developed our own criteria that took into consideration uh, food sovereignty. So in addition to meeting the USDA's definition, how many folks were also food insecure because they weren't getting proper nutrition due to uh, dietary or cultural needs. And so um, that was a long road, right? You think that, okay, you say 70% of your students are food insecure. You know, we need to do something about it. And you think that people are going to do something about it and they don't. And it's like, and then you're like, now what? You know, mm. we, we've done all of this on your terms, right? We used your research methods. We presented it to you in ways that you find palatable. Um, and you're still not doing anything. So what does it take? So really learning um, community organizing and how to use internal and external pressures um, to affect institutional change 
um, is something that I've done in a few projects, <laughs> um, kind of at every institution I've been at. So they're probably like going to put me on some list and be like, don't let her in. <laughs> she just causes problems. <laughs> she makes more work for us. <laughs> Yeah, I really appreciate Anne and the team's work and the forward thinking of the project, acknowledging the truth of the past and knowing that you can't go back and change anything, but seeing that you can change your methodologies, your actions, behaviors, etc. going forward. So, so thank you, Anne Garagiola, University Coordinator and Lead Researcher on The Truth Project which critically examined the impact of the University of Minnesota on Indigenous people in the state. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. Miigwech for listening. Kigawaman. Native Lights, Where Indigenous Voices Shine, is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.